Join me in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. And this morning we will be in verses 19 through 24. Philippians chapter 2. The title of our sermon this morning is Gospel Partnerships. And our keywords for our worshipers in training are Timothy, Interests, and Proven. If you are using the blue ESV Bible, you can find our text this morning on page 900. 81. Now, most people know about the writings of C.S. Lewis because of the Chronicles of Narnia or because of the space trilogy he wrote. But Lewis actually wrote over 50 books. He wrote hundreds of poems, a few allegories, numerous volumes of literary criticism. One of the lesser-known works of Lewis was actually the first thing that he had published. It was a book of poems that he wrote in his 20s called Spirits in Bondage. He was a student at Oxford during World War I in 1919, and he wrote this work as a poetic inquiry into the issues that were going on, issues like war and suffering and evil and morality, and for him at the time, the possibility of God. And at that time, and for about a decade, he identified as an atheist, or at best an agnostic. And it's a fascinating uh, read of poems, because you get the real sense of uh, his spiritual rejection of God, and yet there are glimpses that he was longing for something that he saw in the lives of others. In one of his poems, it's, it's called, In Praise of Solid People, he wrote, ironically, Thank God that there are solid folk. I love this poem because of what he's describing. He says, Thank God there are solid folk who water flowers and roll the lawn and sit and sew and talk and smoke and snore all through the summer dawn. These are people, as you read through the entire poem, that seem happy, they seem content. They're, they're living in the world that uh, God has given to them and placed them in. And the beauty of their lives, as Lewis sees them, is that they are those who pass on troubled nights and says, full fed and sleepily content, rejoicing in each other's praise, respectable and innocent. He doesn't seem turned off by the repetitive nature of their lives. In fact, as you read the poem, you discover for Lewis, it's all actually a dream for him a dream he wishes that he could live. He writes, the world is better for such a life. And what he was completely unaware of as a young man, as he was filled with all of this angst, as he was trying to answer all of these questions for himself, that he too one day would sit of evenings by the fire after his work and doze and smoke and not be fretted by desire. And when C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he found himself to be in the position that he once only saw in his dreams. But it wasn't because of himself. No, there came a day when Lewis could truly thank God because only God could make a solid person out of a man like him. Now, as I think of the young pastor Timothy from the Scriptures, it's always struck me that Timothy is quite like the man that Lewis describes, a solid person. Nothing overly 
exciting or eccentric about Timothy, at least from what we can tell in the Bible. He wasn't a show-off. He wasn't necessarily overly gifted as an orator. He wasn't doing some extraordinary things, but he was a simple pastor seeking to be faithful in his work for the good of the local church that he was called to serve in Ephesus. Likewise, he was a very good friend and companion to Paul and to the other apostles. He was seeking to make their lives and their work a little easier. The world is better because of Timothy. Even today, he was a humble, faithful man who did nothing less than what God calls every pastor to do and what God wants every Christian to do. So as we continue in our series through Paul's letter, we've, we've been spending several weeks looking at what Paul writes to the church about the importance of the church striving together side by side in the Spirit as gospel-centered, gospel-first people, loving one another, serving one another, dying to themselves to live for the sake of the other person, living to others' advantages, working out their own salvation with fear and trembling, taking on themselves the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in doing all of this, doing it without grumbling or disputing, but instead shining as light in a crooked crooked and twisted generation. And then Paul describes his ministry to the Philippians, rejoicing in their faithfulness, saying of himself that he is being poured out like a drink offering on their behalf. It's a beautiful statement. It's a beautiful picture of the apostle giving all of himself for the good of the church. And we saw that last week. So this morning, we get a glimpse of this solid person, Timothy. We get a glimpse of what it looks like to live as one who is living worthy of the gospel in his place. We see this in Paul's son in the faith. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 19 of Philippians chapter 2. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So what does it look like to live a life that Paul mentioned back in chapter 1 and verse 27, a life that has lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul gives us a flesh and blood example by the kinds of things he's going to describe about Timothy. He gives us an example of this solid, faithful man. But first we need to see something, a few other things from Paul as he's addressing the Philippians. There are some, there are some helpful uh, bits of wisdom tucked away in the way that he writes this. And notice how he begins verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. And here we see our first point this morning. Christians must entrust their plans to the sovereign will of God. Now remember, as Paul is writing this, he is imprisoned in Rome. 
He had lived and done ministry long enough to know that his plans are not always the plans of the Lord. And as you read through his letters, this begins to be highlighted throughout everything that he writes. It's not a cliche. Sometimes Christians say, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. It may be just out of habit for some, or... Unfortunately for some, it may just be a way of sounding more spiritual, but Paul truly lived this way. He had plenty of plans foiled by God's will, and you see that as you read through the book of Acts especially, and the things he brings up in his letters, you see time and time again, Paul made a plan, but the Lord changed his plan. And so he lived day by day with an absolute sense of the reality that the best laid plans were still subject to whether or not the Lord would allow them to happen. Elsewhere, he introduced his plans by writing things like, if the Lord wills or if the Lord permits. And while we learn this example from Paul, James is more direct direct in addressing this matter by way of command. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, James writes, "'Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit.'" Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Now, is James's greatest concern here whether or not while we're talking, while we're planning, that we make sure we say the words, if the Lord wills, and if we don't, we are boasting? Not necessarily. The issue here isn't so much about the words we're speaking, but more so about the heart, as the Bible is always going after the heart. What is the heart behind your plans? What is your intent behind the things that you are planning? In other words, Is the Lord in your planning? Are you prayerful? Are you carefully plotting your course with the Lord? And in doing so, what happens if your plans get all messed up? What is our tendency? Our tendency when our plans get messed up is to throw our hands up in disappointment and disgust. We are mad at whoever got in our way. We're frustrated with whatever or whoever it was that put up a roadblock. We're often so certain of our futures in our own minds that we don't even stop to think that we're not so sure we're even going to be alive in the next 20 minutes. A few weeks ago, I was reminded of this. We had a staff meeting here at the church in the morning, and right afterwards, I was going to drive to Savannah to meet with someone, and then I was going to hang out at a coffee shop. I had a lot of work to do, sermon notes to finish up, emails to reply to. I had an article to write. A busy day. Well, I got off Highway 21, was pulling onto I-95, and as soon as I got onto I-95, all of the traffic was at a dead stop, completely dead. And so, of course, my instant reaction, as soon as I realized I was going to be there a while because there was no way out, I couldn't back up, I couldn't go around, my instant reaction was to pray for whatever the circumstances were, that God would be merciful, and I thanked Him for His goodness, for my safety. No, actually, my response was to grumble and to complain, because I had things I needed to get done. 
I was going to be very productive. And now some person did something on this road that prevented me from doing what I had to do. Great. It took me a while to even come to the thought in my own self-focus that for the entire interstate to be closed, something really bad happened. And someone was either in really bad shape or dead as a result in a family or multiple families who were going to get some really bad news. But my concern initially wasn't about them. It was about me. It wasn't about what God's purposes were in all of this. It wasn't about the fact that the Lord, for His purposes, He's working them out ultimately for my good. No, my heart was set on doing what I wanted to do regardless of what was going on with everyone else. And that's James's point, and that's exactly what Paul is exemplifying for us. When everything is being pursued in such a way that it's all about me leaving no room whatsoever for the sovereignty of God, it's arrogant. And I'm going to face a lot of disappointment. And so Paul here bows to God's will as he makes his plan. But we also learn something else here, a second point for us this morning. Christians have a responsibility to make plans. Notice, yes, Paul does put the final result in God's hands, but at the same time, he acknowledges the fact that he does have a plan. He has a desire to send Timothy to make a round trip to Philippi and then to come back to Rome. He wasn't crippled by needing to have 46 people pray and report back whether or not they had a peace about it. He didn't wait for goosebumps when he talked about it. He wasn't waiting to see if he had a burning of the breast. He didn't ask the Lord to show him a sign. He simply planned what he thought would be good and right. He announced his plans in the letter and he trusted that the Lord would work it out however he saw fit. Early in my Christian life, and many of you, this is your situation, I, had, I, I was hearing all kinds of different things about how to make plans, how to make decisions in life as a Christian. I was very confused about all of this, and so I asked a guy at the time, sort of a disciple to me, and he, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And he asked me two questions. Is it sinful? Is it stupid? If it's not sinful and it's not stupid then do it. And if it works out, it was God's will. And if it doesn't, try something else. That's great wisdom. And it stuck with me for a long time because that's basically what we learn from the Scriptures. Now I can have a lengthy theological discussion about all of that, and I'm happy to do that. It's good for us to work through at some point. But most of the time when Christians are sitting around and and waiting for a sign and being indecisive, it's not because we're being so spiritual that we, we're just going to wait until it's, it's certainly from the Lord that this is the way to go. No, more often than not, it's us being lazy. Listen, a 30-year-old man who sleeps until noon and has watched every movie on Netflix isn't struggling to get motivated or lacking in gainful employment or occupationally distressed. He's lazy. The Proverbs call him a sluggard. And a sluggard, according to the Bible, is a fool. Here's what Solomon writes in Proverbs. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. And and so the picture we get here is, is this grown adult man who is lying around all day in his mom's couch and she says, um, you need to go out and get a job. 
And what does he say? Well, Mom, I would love to, but you know, there's lions outside, and as soon as I go out there, they're going to get me. You see, sluggards have excuses. One after another after another, they make excuse after excuse for why things aren't going better. When in reality, they're just being lazy. And oftentimes, and listen, I hear this from Christians in various ways, with various nuances, but it sounds something like this. I applied for the job I wanted nine weeks ago, so I'm just waiting for the Lord to open the door for me. I'm just waiting for God that He will make the way for me. And so I'm going to sit and wait and do nothing else. Here's some really helpful wisdom from a little book by Kevin DeYoung. I've given it to a lot of our young people. A lot of you have read it. It's called Just Do Something. Here's what he writes about this. We want to know... God's individual specific plan for the who, what, where, when, and how of our lives. We want to know his direction. So here's the real heart of the matter. Does God have a secret will of direction that he expects us to figure out before we do anything? The answer is no. Yes, God has a specific plan for our lives. Yes, we can be assured that he works things for our good in Christ Jesus. Yes, looking back, we will often be able to trace God's hand in bringing us where we are. But while we are free to ask God for wisdom, He does not burden us with the task of divining His will of direction for our lives ahead of time. God does have a specific plan for our lives, but it is not one that He expects us to figure out before we make a decision. Listen, the Lord wants us to make plans. He wants us to execute those plans as we are able to wisely discern how to do so without being sinful or stupid. And as we do that, He will work out all of the details to bring about His glory and ultimately your good. In other words, don't be a sluggard. Trust the Lord and trust His will that it is good and it is right and it will come to pass according to His divine decree. But make plans and execute them. If something needs to change, God will have no problem executing that change. All right, so with Paul, we see him trusting God. We see him making plans. Now, what are those plans and what does he hope to accomplish? Third thing we see in our text this morning from verses 19 to 21, Christians should bind their hearts to the local church. Notice Paul's reasoning for his plan to send Timothy from Rome to the church in Philippi and then back. He says, so that I may be cheered by news of you. Remember again, while Paul's in prison, there's likely nothing more that he could hope for to hear than cheerful, good, heartening news that would come from the church in Philippi as they read his letter and they took it to heart. We've mentioned before that Philippi was very likely Paul's favorite church. Remember back in chapter 1 as he was writing to them, he said, I hold you in my heart how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He wanted to be with them. But the, the best he could hope for at this time was to get a letter to them, to express his love for them, to give them some instruction, to give them some encouragement, and then to hear good news back from Timothy as he returned. So Paul fixes his heart on the ups and downs 
of this church. When things were going well and everyone is is living at peace with one another, enjoying the blessings of God together, he rejoices with them. And he's thankful and he's glad-hearted with them. Likewise, no doubt, when the church was, was suffering in some way or there was disunity or tension, he was experiencing sorrow with the church. It's similar to what he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? Likewise, he wrote to the Thessalonians, When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You see, constantly, Paul was concerned to know what was going on in the churches. His heart was bound up with these churches. But of course, he was, he was most delighted to hear of the great gospel advances that were taking place in all of the churches. And here he was anticipating good news from Philippi, that it would lift his spirits. And this should be the heart of Christians toward the local church. Christians should have this kind of heart where our emotions, our very, our very being is tied to the health of the local church, physically and spiritually. This is exactly how Paul describes the church in 1 Corinthians. When one member suffers, the entire body suffers. When one member rejoices, the entire body rejoices. And listen, I want to say over the years at Redeemer Baptist Church, I've been so thankful for the times that we've wept together for the times that we've laughed together, for the times that we've rejoiced together. There's been times when we've suffered together, when someone's hurting, when someone's celebrating, when someone's rejoicing, all these things. As they've come together, we've, we've been able to see the church truly functioning as the body. I've, I've seen that in many of you and your experiences in the body with one another. And, and the church shouldn't be sort of this peripheral addition to our lives. It it shouldn't be something we do and we don't have something else going on. It it shouldn't be us coming to worship at the last minute, leaving as soon as we can. That becomes just about us. That That becomes just about me and Jesus. But you know, the Bible actually tells us that our gathering together for corporate worship is about, first and foremost, worshiping God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also about the edification of the body. The Scriptures tell us all of us have a responsibility as we come together to be prepared to edify the body of Christ. That I would come with a heart to seek to know how my brothers and sisters are doing to find ways to be praying for them, to follow up with them about their lives, to encourage them in some way. We need to be talking about life. We need to be praying for one another. We need to be serving each other. We need to be spending time with one another outside of of Sunday mornings. And so if this this is it for you, then, then you have to think about whether or not the church is fully a part of you and whether or not your heart is truly bound to God and His people. Because the people of the church need one another and it should be in our hearts and when there's a need, when we see that there's a need to be filled, that, and there's a way that we can fill that need as the body of Christ, and we're able to do that, that our first instinct would be to follow up, to serve, 
that our hearts are so bound to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ that, that we cannot help but experience the ups and downs of life with one another. That when someone in the body is suffering, that, that we experience that suffering with them. When someone is rejoicing in something great that the Lord has done in their lives, that we're not jealous, but we rejoice with them and we're thankful with them. Now, in verses 20 and 21 here, we get an example of this from our solid man, our faithful man, Timothy. What appears to be the case from the text here is that things were not going well at the church in Rome, to say the least. Of all the people in the church, it appears that Timothy was the only one who stood faithful in his commitments. Literally, Paul is writing, I have no one equal in soul. In other words, as he interacts with the church in Rome, as he was in the church and perhaps as he encountered the people of the church while he was in prison, he he didn't find anyone he deemed to be of the same heart and mind as he was in the way that Timothy was. Now, it's likely that he was referring specifically to the pastors and elders, mainly because he, does, he did tell us back in chapter 1 that there were a few faithful believers there in Rome. So he's looking here for a specific kind of person with a specific calling. He's looking for able-bodied men who could go to Philippi, who could encourage the saints, probably through preaching, through delivering good news, and then returning with good news to Paul. But when it came to the Romans, by and large, remember back in chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul wrote, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but in humility count others more significantly than yourselves. But here he says of the Romans, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They're seeking the very opposite of what I just commanded you. They're all selfish. Ah, what a terrible indictment. If you recall, even the preachers in Rome, we saw this in chapter 1, even the preachers were filled with selfish ambition. Some of them were preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. They wanted bigger churches. They wanted their ministries to be recognized. They wanted people to think more highly of them. They were self-centered. They were self-promoting. But not Timothy. Timothy was a different kind of man. He was a solid person. Timothy was a faithful man. And Paul said to the Philippians that Timothy would be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The word concern there is sometimes translated as as worry. In other words, Timothy's concern for them was so sincere that when they saw him, it would appear that he's worried for them. He's worried that they're doing well. He's wonderfully anxious about their well-being. He was a solid person because he was obviously remarkably adept at doing what Paul exhorted them to do already, putting others before himself. There's a theologian by the name of Leslie Newbegin, and he once wrote about modern evangelical Christianity, and this is what he observed. He said, I suddenly saw that someone could use all the language of evangelical Christianity, and yet the center was fundamentally the self and my need of salvation. And God is auxiliary to that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip, can become centered in me and my need of salvation, and not in the glory of God. 
Isn't that strange? The gospel could become an occasion for profound self-absorption. Again, that's the idea that it's just me and Jesus. And if we have the me and Jesus mindset, we fundamentally misunderstand the church and what the gospel transforms us to. No doubt we live in the age of self. In fact, sociologists are trying to decide what the next generation after the millennials is going to be called, the generation of a lot of our kids, and right now they're settling on I generation. That's accurate, isn't it? (laughs) And today, many Christians believe that Christianity is about self-fulfillment, or we hear things like, we can't love others until we love ourselves. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? No, the Bible indicates that the very problem is that we love ourselves too much. And because of that, we're prone to back off and not unite our hearts to the church, but to selfishly do what we want in the way that we want to do it without any concern for anyone else. Brothers and sisters, we must have hearts bound to the local church to rejoice with her, to suffer with her, to weep with her and to thank God with her for all that He is doing in and through us. We must live lives worthy of the gospel in the church and with the church. Well, last thing for us to see this morning, verses 22 through 24. Christians should be concerned with forging gospel partnerships with the universal church. So we've talked about the local church, but Paul also shows us something about the universal church. He continues to mention Timothy and explain that not only is he a man of proven worth, but he's a man that Paul himself is a, is a spiritual father to, a man who has served, uh, and Timothy has served Paul as his son. If you read carefully throughout the New Testament, you'll notice that Timothy's name pops up quite a few times. He's traveled a lot with Paul. He has ministered in a lot of different churches. And because of his ministry, Paul trusted Timothy would go to minister to the church. And he trusted that in time, Timothy would return to Rome. And in doing so, that he would minister to Paul. After several years of serving alongside one another, Timothy learned the things of God from his father in the faith. He listened to Paul's instruction And he watched Paul interact and minister with others. They suffered together, and their friendship grew in deep love for one another. And now Paul trusts Timothy to do the very thing that Paul would do himself. But here's something else very important for us to see. Paul and Timothy understood the role of a gospel minister to be something something that served the universal body of Christ and not just the local church. Consider this. Timothy was the pastor of a local church. He was the pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus. That's the church where he served, where he preached, where he ministered to God's people. However, that is not all that Timothy did. Timothy also traveled around with Paul, as I mentioned. He went on lengthy journeys to minister to other believers in other churches. He, he used his gifts wherever there was opportunity to serve the people of God. We see this sort of thing going on all throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. God's ministers were not just serving the local church to which they were appointed. That was their main focus of ministry for sure, but that that wasn't their only focus of ministry. 
There's a way in which the ministers of the church are not just for the local church in which they serve. Now, we at our church, we've been the beneficiaries of other pastors coming and serving us here in conferences and camps and various weekends here and there. And as a church, you've supported me in doing the same thing in other churches at conferences or going to Nigeria. You've supported a ministry to the church universal by giving me time to go and write, give me writing leave to write a book that's now published and available on the back table for $7 or on Amazon.com for $9.99. Thank you. (laughs) But the church has been very good about this. I've never once come back here after a trip or being away even being gone for a few Sundays to minister in other churches, I've never had anyone come to me and say, you should have been here. You should only be here. This is your church. We support you. This is where you always need to be. Because it's really, really good for the church that we have connections with other churches and other ministries that we can partner with and that we can minister to them. And most often, that's going to be through the preaching and writing ministry of your pastors. And and that's a good thing. We should all support that. And through that, we can continue forging gospel partnerships with the church universal. Just like when pastors come here, and after a lot of times after someone preaches here, you come to me and you tell me, man, that was so refreshing. We are so thankful you brought him here. That was such a good, soul-stirring, soul-satisfying sermon. That was so good. I've never heard a sermon so good from our pulpit before. (laughs) You see, the trick is, I just give them one of my old sermons, but when they preach it, it's so much better. You know, one of my my heroes of the faith, Martin Lloyd-Jones, just prior to him dying, someone asked him, what is one of your greatest regrets in ministry? And he said that I didn't have more pastors preach in our church on a regular basis and that I didn't preach in other places as much as I could have. It's a blessing to be a part of the church universal and we should all rejoice in that. We should rejoice in the opportunities that we have to do that. And one of the opportunities we have to do that is through our network of churches and we thank God for those partnerships and the many people we've been able to meet and work with through the years. Now, another aspect of that blessing for us is in forging those relationships is with other churches in our own community. I've tried to work hard to be able to do that through the years with our church. It's encouraging and healthy to be able to gather with other men, encourage one another from other churches right around us. It's quite helpful. Sometimes people will come to us and they'll start saying some nasty things about the church that they came from, but we have a relationship with that church. We have a relationship with their leadership, and and maybe God can use us to be agents of reconciliation. That's been the case before. There are many ways in which we can forge those relationships. And so we are members of a local church, and our hearts should be bound up with that local church. But simultaneously, we should be forging relationships with the church universal. That was the heart of Timothy that Paul loved so much. That was his concern for the people in Ephesus, but for, also for brothers and sisters uh, throughout all the other churches. So much so that as he went, it is clear that he cared for them and he loved them. 
He came with such concern that they saw it written all over his face. And so Paul places all of his confidence in Timothy's ministry to to the church at Philippi where he sent him. He knew that when when he would remind the people of the glorious grace of God in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Timothy was going to tell the people in Philippi of all that, that God was doing, and he was going to encourage them to keep pressing on. He was going to encourage them to keep being faithful, to keep living lives worthy of the gospel. He knew that Timothy was going to talk to them Along, uh, talk to people along the way as he was going and sharing with people the gospel and, and talking to them as he was going to preach in the church. He was, he was talking to people who he met who weren't believers and he was going to tell them of the good news of the Lord Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death, who was buried and raised from the dead. That by faith, if they put their faith and trust in him, that they too could have everlasting life. And Paul knew that as Timothy went along the way, that this was his aim, that this is what he would do. He had no question about sending him, because it wasn't about himself. For Timothy, it was about bringing glory to God, honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, loving and serving the local church and not himself. So, brothers and sisters, may we forge gospel partnerships to the glory of God and the good of the church. Timothy is a hero of the faith. He was a solid person, not because Timothy was extraordinarily gifted or that he even lived in extraordinary circumstances. Timothy is a hero of the faith because he was faithful to do what God called him to do, even if he was the only one around doing it. That takes a lot. And there's not many through the history of the world, the history of the church, who've been faithful like Timothy. I want to close with a quote that I think helps us to think rightly about our responsibilities, God's people living as the church, as citizens of his kingdom. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here's what he writes. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with our more important tasks as the priests pass by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. When we do that, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact that Christians frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. They do not want a life that is crooked and balked. But it is part of the discipline of humility that we must not spare our hand where it can perform a service and that we do not assume that our schedule is our own to manage but allow it to be arranged by God.